when I decided to go to seminary, at the same time, I decided to transform myself and to become humble and teachable and that I, I, was, I, was wanted, I wanted to be someone who went through seminary where the professors didn't even know my name and get out of there and never, never be the center of any controversy whatsoever. And that lasted about a week and a half. Um, I won't tell you about the first one, but the second one that came up about midway through the first semester, uh, there was a forum on feminism that was held on campus where several experts in the subject held a panel discussion on the feminist movement and its relationship to modern Christianity. This was not about equal pay for equal work or equal opportunity, anything like that at all. It was, it was uh, about adopting some of the more radical aspects of feminism into the church. The most radical of the aspects would be to do away with all gender distinctions in the church. Radically reinterpreting the New, Inte- the New Testament and especially Paul's writings to conform to feminist ideals. I don't know what happened, but during the question and answer session that followed the panel discussion, I did what I had vowed not to do, and I became embroiled in the controversy. All I did was ask a couple of questions, but they were not received very well. I guess I was a bit naive, but I tried, and um, I didn't particularly care for the attitude or the presentation that these people have. It was like hanging raw meat before a dog, and I bit. I was respectful, but I did challenge some of the things that were happening that day. When it was all over, I had thoroughly hacked off all the panelists, including one of the panelists who was the head of one of the departments at Dallas Seminary. I happened to be in one of his classes at that time. But as I left the room, I saw two men waiting for me. And I thought, they they came to me and they asked if they could have a word with me. And I thought, well, why not? You know, I've already made everybody else in here mad. And all I thought I was doing was defending the traditional Christian faith. Uh, But I said, sure, you can have a word with me if you like. We walked outside. We walked across campus. It turned out that they were visiting professors from another seminary. And they said, we were shocked. We couldn't say anything because it wasn't our place. But we were very proud of you for having stood up for traditional Dallas Seminary, the traditional things of the Christian faith. And I told them I appreciated that very much. A few weeks after that, now you've got to remember, in seminaries, in universities, no matter medical schools, whatever it is, Professors talk. When they, have, when they have their faculty meetings, when they have their get-togethers in the lounges, they talk. And they talk about students. And they talk about students that give them a hard time. And uh, somehow I became the subject of discussion in the, in the faculty meetings. And a few weeks later, I was in a Christian ed class. And lo and behold, the professor announces another forum on feminism that's going to be in that class the next week. I'm thinking, where is all this coming from? Another forum on feminism. Well, sure enough, before he's finished making the announcement, he points to me and says, You, Bruce, if you open your mouth and say one word to these ladies and challenge them, then you're out of here and you'll be taking this class again. So I said, Okay, no problemo. (laughs) The the, The day of the class comes, the panelists are there. There was three. Two of them were quite good. One of them was extremely insulting, I thought told all the men in the class, we don't know our Bibles, we don't know our theology, it was just like that. And, and the professor was looking at me. He stood there, he just looking. You going to say it? Let's see. Come on, big boy. I'll throw you out of here. So I couldn't help myself. <laughs> and I raised my hand. And I asked the one who had been a little bit snippety. I do real well with snippety panelists. I said, listen, on the way over here after lunch today, I heard a report on ABC News. And in that report, they reported that this was the early 90s. They reported that 
women, in the poll that they had just taken, women were more unhappy in marriage than at any other time when they had taken that poll. It was ABC News Gallup poll. Than at any other time that they had taken that poll. And I said to the one panelist who was rather insulting to all the rest of us, I said, to what would you attribute that? And she thought for a minute, she said, well, probably the feminist movement. I said, oh, that's all I wanted to know. That was the end of the discussion. It was almost my end, end of that time at Dallas Seminary because the professor, you could just see steam coming straight out of his ears. One of my friends, you know, nice guy, walked out of the class with the professor. And he said, do you think that Bumgarner did that as a legitimate question or was he trying to make a point? And he said, the professor, he was trying to make a point. But I did get to stay. That year I wrote a research, a major research paper on the topic along with a few minor ones that, that same semester. And I had no idea when I began that semester that I'd been spending so much time on the topic of the feminist movement and its incorporation into the Christian church, especially not radical feminism and how it relates to biblical hermeneutics. And I'm thinking, why in the world did the Lord bring this to me to spend this much time studying? But as we approach the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I have to tell you I'm grateful for the experience. It was a bit painful and I didn't get out of Dallas Seminary with nobody knowing my name. All the professors knew my name by the time I was finished. <laughs> Fortunately, at the end, though, it was for good reasons. And that same professor, I have to give a postscript, that same professor that I made so mad at the first forum on feminism, as I was leaving on my last day, ran to catch me. He put his arms around me, and he said, Listen, Bruce, I want to tell you, it's been a pleasure having you here. You're one of the good guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a challenging passage. Most New Testament scholars agree that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, is the most challenging passage in the letter, first letter to the Corinthians, when it comes to interpretation and then application. As you'll probably recall, in 1 Corinthians, Paul will address 11 concerns of the church that have come to him by way of a letter. Ten of the 11 are behavioral concerns, and only one is purely theological. The concern that is brought up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, is one of the behavioral concerns. An inquiry has come to Paul, presumably originating from some of the women in the church. And although this particular inquiry in this particular question is not as easy to reconstruct as some of the others have been, it appears that the question had to do with gender distinctions in the body of Christ and how that plays out in worship especially in light of a passage like Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. The first century Corinthians probably didn't have access to that letter, although it was written before Paul's time in, in Corinth. But even though they didn't have access to the letter, they didn't have access to the human author of that letter. He had taught them for quite some time. So there's no doubt that they had access to the principles of Galatians. So they, without a doubt, had heard the view. In view of what they had been taught by Paul about in the body of Christ, there are no essential distinctions in, in, in the sense of essential value before God. In view of that are all gender distinctions and the leadership roles that are associated with those distinctions, null and void. In the body of Christ are all the roles, null and void. Interestingly, that, those are some of the issues that were discussed in those two forums many years ago when I was in seminary. The ancient equivalent of radical feminism 
had seeped in through the doors and the cracks of the windows at the church at Corinth. Now here's the answer that Paul gives to that question. The basic question being, are all gender distinctions and the leadership roles associated with those distinctions null and void? This is how Paul answers that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and following. Now one quick note, the reason I'm starting in verse 2 is verse 1 of chapter 11 actually goes with chapter 10. We mentioned that ever, ever so briefly last time. I should have made a, a bigger point of that. But the, the phrase, be imitators of me, just as I also am in Christ, that goes back to chapters 8 and 10. That's the summary of, of that chapter, of those chapters. Now, in verse 2, we begin the next major section. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with those whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Then in verse 11, However, in the Lord, neither is the woman independent of man, nor is the man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has had his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, is it a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice or custom nor have the churches of God. For many of us, on the face of it, that paragraph leaves us with more questions than it does with answers. It is a challenging paragraph. Are women commanded to wear a scarf over their heads in church? What's with men, the men having long hair comment? What's with all that? Is this a polemic against rock and roll musicians? What does it mean that long hair on a woman was given to her for a covering? Does this mean that shorter hairstyles in women are sinful? There are questions that are raised by this. And unfortunately, across the board in New Testament scholarship, New Testament scholars agree that the questions are not answered with the clarity that we'd like for them to be answered. That could be troubling, but I have found personally when this is the case that it's helpful to take a step back and take a look at the broader picture before we dig into the details and ask ourselves the questions. And if you do Bible study on your own, if you teach a Bible study, this this is very valuable information I'll give you right now. Sometimes you need to take a step back and take a look at the broader picture and ask yourself this question, could something else be going on here? Is there something more central, some overriding principle that Paul is proclaiming here in this paragraph? 
And when we take a broader look at the passage, I believe that we will see that indeed there is something else going on here. Yes, there are some details. Yes, there are some things about scarves and long hair and short hair and head coverings. But there's more to it than that. Here's an important principle. When you're studying the Word of God, and that should be all of us, if we're not given all of the details necessary to arrive at a conclusion on a particular issue, at least not all the details that across the board people agree that we don't have enough to be dogmatic about this passage, then whatever we might be focusing upon in that chapter or in that paragraph or that verse, if, it's, if we take it to that small of a unit, is probably not that aspect of that unit that the Holy Spirit wants us to be dogmatic about. You following me? If there's not, an, if there's not as much detail as we would like to have, then that's probably not the aspect that the Holy Spirit is stressing in that passage. Let me give you an illustration from another passage of Scripture. Actually, Alex read from a portion of it today. In Genesis chapter 1, we have an account of creation. That account of creation, almost like this account in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, has left many people with more questions than they started off at, you know, exactly how did God do this? You have some people that argue for an old earth and some people that argue for a young earth and and literal days in Genesis and and non-literal days in Genesis and all these things that come up. And we argue about some of the details in Genesis chapter 1 that I don't believe the Holy Spirit ever wanted us to argue about because that wasn't his point in Genesis chapter 1. The point that he was making in Genesis chapter 1 was to a group of people that, was, that just finished the exodus that was going into the land of Canaan. And as they entered the land of Canaan, they were going to encounter giants and the people who worshipped the moon and the sun and animals and various creeping things. And Moses is telling them there, not the details of how God did it so much, but he's telling them that all these things that the Canaanites worship. You're so afraid of the Canaanites. All the things that they worship, your God created them. That's the primary point. In the same kind of, kind of way, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there are these issues that people have argued back and forth. Is this just for Corinth? Was this, is this a situation that had to do with temple prostitutes? All the particular details. But if we take a step back, we see there's a bigger message that's going on here. A much bigger message, more important message. Verse 3 is perhaps the key verse in this unit when it comes to unlocking the central message of the paragraph. But since the other issues are so intriguing, so controversial, it's tempted to slide past verse 3 and move on into the others. And that's where we make a mistake. So let's go back to verse 3 and see the central point that Paul is attempting to make in this passage. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. The Greek term for head there is kephale. Kephale can mean the literal head, that which sits upon your shoulders. It can mean leadership or authority over, or it can mean source. Of those three, the, the meaning source is by far and away the least attested. The last research that I saw, which is a few years old, but the last research that I saw on all of Greek literature, kephale was only used in a definitive way to mean source once. And it was the source of a river, and it was used in the plural only one time that way, where there are dozens and dozens of meanings, whether the literal head or authority over. 
So it doesn't mean source in this paragraph, although some try to superimpose that meaning here. It's poor method. It's bad technique, and it gives you a wrong understanding. In the first place, you might can understand that Christ is the source of man. Man is the source of woman, maybe. But God is the source of Christ. You've got some real serious Christological problems if you introduce that. Things that contradict other portions of the Scripture. Jesus Christ is eternal. He had no source. So the word source is not something that we can insert here. It does mean authority over, although in this paragraph, there'll be the literal use of kephale, the head itself, and covering it. And there'll also be this metaphorical use of authority or leadership, leadership or authority over. God the Father has leadership over Christ. By the way, one with whom he was perfectly and eternally equal. Christ has authority over mankind, and the man, or in this reference I think it means the husband, has leadership responsibility over the woman or the wife. In, first, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, as Alex read this morning, he read that God created both, both the man and the woman, both male and female in his image. I hope you caught that. Both males and females have equal standing before God. Both have equal value before God. And I need to make that abundantly clear before we go any further with the passage. Males and females were both created in the image of God. Both have equal value before God. That's what gives us our value in the first place is the fact that we're created in His image. Both have equal value before God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 actually makes the same point. In Christ, which means for those who have personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins... And to grant them eternal life. That puts you in the body of Christ. That means you receive eternal life. That means you receive salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Those of us that have by grace through faith alone apart from any works received the free gift of salvation. We are now in Christ. Now all of us who are in Christ we understand that there are no distinctions when it comes to essential value before God. No distinctions whatsoever. Slaves are not inferior to free persons in the body of Christ. Gentiles are not inferior to Jews. And males are not superior to females. I hope you heard that. Males are not superior to females. Yet it is clear from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Verse 3, and a passage like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, that God has ordained a leadership structure for the family. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he uses a word there, hypotasso. Hypotasso is a Greek term that means to submit. And in that passage, he tells wives to submit to their own husbands in the Lord, not to submit to men in general. That's a, a, fall, that's a cultish fallacy but to submit to their own husbands. And boy, that has created all kinds of problems for the church, inside the church, outside the church, and for people like me that do weddings. It seems like I've never, I don't know, ever, remit, well, one, I do remember one wedding I did where it didn't become an issue. But pretty much every other wedding that I've done, you'll have some younger ladies that will sit close to the front. There's oftentimes there are bridesmaids that are standing up. And you mentioned something about the vows of the wife submitting to the leadership of her husband. And it's like I just threw a dagger out, a, a Molotov cocktail out into the audience, and they'll look up at you like, did I just hear him correctly? Did I, that is not right. I'm not going for that. 
And a long time ago, I realized the way to, the way to handle this is to explain it. You know, communication does wonders for relationships, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's one-on-a-group. And when I explain that Jesus Christ was perfectly and eternally equal with the Father, yet he willingly submitted himself to the Father's leadership, one with whom he was perfectly equal for our benefit, then it's a little easier. Once Jesus Christ has made the model, it's a little easier for a Christian woman to say, okay, I get that. Because if you were to say, because so many people in, in today's world try to say that submission equals inferiority. And that's a lie straight from the devil. If a policeman is giving me a ticket, he has authority over me at that particular moment. When he's writing me that ticket, he has no more essential value before God than I do. He's not superior to me. I'm not inferior to him. He's writing me the ticket, and I submit to his leadership. When I'm in a college classroom, I submit to the leadership of the professor. I know it didn't sound like it a minute ago, but I actually did. I didn't, I didn't violate his command. But most of the time, I submit to the leadership of the professor. But it doesn't mean he's superior to me. You, you see the point. Hypotasso, to submit, does not indicate inferiority on the part of the one doing the submission. It means that you are submitting to one with whom we are inferior, and that's God the Father himself, because he's the one that set this thing up. There is a leadership structure for the family. There's a leadership structure in society. There's a leadership structure in the church. I'm standing before you today, and because I'm presenting you the Word of God, there is a certain amount of leadership that I have, a certain amount of authority, if you want that word. I know that's kind of a a word that's antiquated in some people's books, but that's kind of what it is. But that doesn't mean I have authority over you in any other area of life. Sometimes people get that idea wrong about pastoral ministry, and they think the pastor has some authority over them outside of this local church. Absolutely none, zero. That's your husband, or that's the police officer, or that's the judge, or that's the the teacher in the classroom. There are all levels of authority all over the place. But as soon as you leave here, I have no leadership over you, unless we're in a pastoral context. So we all submit to to authority, we all submit to leadership, and it doesn't mean we're inferior. That's why I picked that passage this morning to be read for the scripture reading. Both male and female were created in the image of God. We need to get that square right up front. Before God, there is no essential difference. There's no essential value difference. But does that mean that there are no gender distinctions in the church? And Paul's primary point in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that the creation order should be properly manifested, not obliterated in Christian worship, especially in view of the fact that angels observe our worship. That's Paul's point here. As an aside, this is one of the things, one of the few things that most New Testament scholars do agree upon in this passage, that the created order, the creation order, should be properly manifested, not obliterated in Christian worship. While a lot of people argue about the details of exactly what this head covering is, very few argue against the fact that that's the primary point of this passage. And so that's why I'm going to present it to you today. We'll get to the head covering in just a moment. I know we've only got about 15 minutes left. We'll get to that. But the primary point of this passage is that there is a created order, and yes, that created order does move into the church. It's not obliterated when it comes to Christian worship. It should be properly manifested, not discarded. Ben Witherington, who's an extremely well-respected biblical scholar at Ashland Theological Seminary, weighs in this way. He says, worship 
is the act of praising and glorifying God for who he is, which at the same time entails that human beings recognize who they are under God and in Christ. The proper human response to redemption is that both men and women are not only to bear witness to who they are, but also to whose they are. As Paul will argue in chapter 15, Witherington goes on to say, redemption involves the body. Therefore, male-female differentiation is part of what God intends to redeem, not transcend or supersede. It seems clear from chapter 15 that the Corinthians had not reckoned with the role of the body and therefore of human sexual differentiation in the order of salvation. So the principles in place, before we get to the details, we don't check the leadership structure that God ordained at the door of the church. That's why he put it in verse 3 before he gets into the details of the passage. The creation order should be properly manifested, not obliterated, in Christian worship. Okay, now how does that play out when it comes to head coverings? Or... Most all of you in trouble this morning because you didn't wear something on your head? Is there a problem with that? Well, let's see. Verses 3 through 6 again. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, that the man is the head of the woman, and that God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, there are a few historical details that would help us tremendously in understanding this passage. For one, in the Roman world, men offered sacrifices with their heads covered. In fact, I think they even have a statue of the Emperor Augustine, Augustus, Octavian, offering a sacrifice with his head covered. On the other hand, Christian women were to have their heads covered as a testimony to angelic beings who observe worship. If she refuses in this sense, she's to have her head shaved. Now, I want you to notice there are only two aspects of worship that are even in view in the first place. Did you see that? If you're doing careful Bible study, we should see it while praying or prophesying. These are the only two aspects of worship that are in view in the first place. And since I believe that the gift of prophecy was a gift that has been done away with it toward the end of the first century, we'll study that when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, the only issue we're really talking about is praying. When a woman prays in the church, she should have some sort of covering on her head. There is some evidence, although it may not be conclusive, that temple prostitutes in Corinth had their heads shaved. That's why he says in verse 5, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is the one and the same with with whose head is shaved. That is probably, I can't say it dogmatically, but that's probably a reference to temple prostitutes in Corinth. So Paul is saying if if you're not behaving properly, you're just like one of those temple prostitutes. Paul maintains that it would be shameful for Christian women to appear in Corinth as prostitutes. 
Then in verses 7 through 9, Paul reaffirms the creation order, which gives us another clue that that's really the primary point of the passage. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he's the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. This reaffirms the created order, again with no disrespect meant to the woman, and no inferiority implied as is made clear in what's fixing to come up. Let me read it. Therefore the woman ought to have uh, on her head a symbol of authority because of the angels. Now listen carefully. However, in the Lord. Now think of Galatians 3.28 when you hear these words. In Christ there's no male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. Listen to these words. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Guess what? We need each other. That's the way God created us, to be a helper and ezer in the worship of the Lord. For as woman originates from man, so also man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God, by the way. To get, if, if any man is getting huffy about it out there, yes, we, man was the first created. But everybody in here who wasn't born by a woman, raise your hand. Nobody can do it. That's Paul's point. It's a package deal. There's no inferiority that's even implied here. And I think if that was explained, there'd be a whole lot less of this angst and anger on the part of Christian females. The only reason it's there is because it's not explained. If you think that the submitting to leadership makes you inferior to the one that you're submitting to, you also have to say, reasonably and rationally, that Christ is inferior to God the Father because he submitted to his leadership. And who would want to say that? Nobody. Christ was perfectly equal with the Father. That is abundantly clear in Scripture. In the next few verses, Paul is going to introduce the concept that a woman's long hair serves as her head covering. So in case you're wondering and you're steaming right now because you think you should have had a head covering and nobody ever told you before, uh, women, your hair is the head covering. I don't believe that Paul is making an issue of hairstyle here. Hair length is relative. What is in vogue changes. Now, if you saw a picture of me in the late 60s and early 70s, you wouldn't recognize me. Back then, what I had was considered to be short hair. But if I was standing here today with that haircut, you'd say, hey, here's 10 bucks, go get yourself, go find yourself a barber. It's all relative. And I say the same with women's haircuts as well. Perhaps the only measuring stick for Corinthian women was not to have their haircut so short that she would be mistaken for a man or for a temple prostitute. Let's go on with this passage. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. And here's one of the operative phrases, one of the few operative phrases to help us to understand this whole head covering thing. In verse 15, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And again, I said, perhaps I can't be dogmatic about it, but if historians are correct and the temple prostitutes did have their hair shaven... 
it makes sense to me why Paul would say in the church at Corinth, we don't want you coming in here looking like a temple prostitute participating in a public form of worship. That's all he's saying here. Because there is a created order that needs to be followed. There's order outside the church. There's order inside the church. And we want to maintain that order. So I don't believe that he's really making an issue of hairstyle or scarves. Now, if you're convicted, and one of my very best friends, Professor Dallas Seminary, one of the smartest people I've ever met, has decided to be safe. He has his wife wear a scarf to church, at least if she's going to pray. And that's his, it's his privilege. I understand what he's doing. But I've got to tell you, honestly, I don't see the passage that way. Otherwise, I would tell you. Because that's my job as your pastor. I want to help affect your spiritual growth by means of the Holy Spirit working through you. I don't want to tell you something wrong. But this verse really nails it down. For her hair is given to her as a covering. And perhaps... The only measuring stick for the length of hair would have been either don't shave it like a temple prostitute or at least have it longer than your husband's. But I still don't think that that's the primary issue in the passage. As to men, long hair is also relative, as I said a moment ago. Some teach that this means that a man's hair should not exceed the length of his wife, and perhaps that's the case. But the bigger point is the leadership structure outlined in verse 3, that there is a divine order in worship. And that only makes sense because Paul wrote things after 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that outline the structure of leadership in a church. It makes no scholarly sense at all to say that here and in Galatians, the earlier writings that he had, he's obliterating the leadership structure and then in the pastoral epistles he introduces a new one. No, that doesn't make sense. The bigger point, again, is that the leadership structure outlined in verse 3 should be a part of the worship structure of the church. Then in verse 16, but if one is inclined to become contentious, let me paraphrase it, but if you'd like to argue with me about that, Paul says, we have no other culture, no other custom, no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Uh, that verse indicates that there were individuals in Corinth who had a problem in this area. He wouldn't have brought that up had there not been people that wanted to argue with him and people that wanted to cause trouble over this issue. And here he refers to practice or custom, and he brings in the idea of other churches. And we need to be sensitive about that. Sometimes we want to isolate ourselves. We're an independent local church. Well, yes, we are, but we're part of the larger body of Christ, and we need to remain connected to it. That's, that's why I make every effort that I can to associate with other pastors as often as I can. Pastors of the seminary that I attended, Paul Shockley and I are both the, were the directors for the Alumni Association for Dallas Theological Seminary for this, seminary for this region of Texas. I love doing that because at least once a, once a quarter, once every six months or so, we get together with pastors and we sit down and we can talk about things. I also like to get together with pastors outside of my seminary tradition. I like to get together with other people in the Christian community just find out what's going on, what kind of issues they have in their church What's new in their church? What are they doing? What kind of problems they have? What kind of joys and blessings are they receiving? It's just smart. You do it in any other field. And Paul brings up here this idea that the cultural practices, the customs that we have in one church, are in some way associated with the, with the customs that we have in other churches. We're not totally isolated from other churches. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's healthy at all for an individual local church to totally isolate itself from the Christian community. 
not healthy at all. So Paul talks about customs and he brings up other local churches. That's not the only time he'll do this. He does it several times in this letter alone. If you want to argue, Paul says, this is what is customary in the churches and that's all I have to say about it. I think Paul is not making this a minor issue in terms of the head covering issue. It certainly is enough for him to write about, but especially compared to what he's about to say, it doesn't carry the same importance about, as to what he's about to bring up when it comes to the Lord's table. So he's not flippantly just sloughing them off, although it may sound like it on first glance, but he's just saying this is the custom in the churches. You would be wise to pay attention. Now this doesn't, it's not to say that he's not issuing mandates here. He is, is, he is issuing mandates. The one particular one that we can't hardly get a pass is if a woman does pray in public, and again, that's the only aspect of, this, of the worship service I think that's in view here, given that prophesying was done away with, with some of the other temporary spiritual gifts. If she's going to pray in public and she prays looking like a prostitute, then there's a problem with that. She's dishonoring her husband when she does that. She's dishonoring her Lord and then ultimately dishonoring God. And since that leadership structure is in place, God, Christ, husband, woman, no inferiority except for between us and God and Christ, of course. But she dishonors her husband if she comes to church looking like a prostitute. Is that so hard to figure out? It really shouldn't be. Now, I'm not trying to say that a very difficult passage is really not that hard at all. It is. Believe me, there are some challenges here. But when we go back to the overall purpose of the passage, it does become somewhat easier. So how are we then to view this challenging passage in summary? First, we must use extreme caution in using 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 as a proof text to condemn a man over the length of his hair. This passage, unfortunately, was abused in times past, particularly 60s and 70s, by well-meaning pastors. But it's not the essence of what Paul is saying here. Long hair, length is a relative term. My dad was attending a church in the 70s and walked into the church and his hair was right over the top of his ears. And somebody came up to him and said, I don't know what's the matter with you. You need to get rid of this long hair. Now, in everybody else's mind, dad had really short hair. But in this guy's mind, the guy had long hair. He was condemnatory for it. And that's not the point of this passage. So while those pastors were well-meaning that did that, that's not what's going on here. Long is a relative term, probably relative in the context to their wives' hair. But even that's challenging to say. But I think that's probably what's happening here. Second, I do not believe that this passage mandates that a woman wear a scarf over her head when she prays in church. Again, prophecy, in my view, is no longer a valid spiritual gift, so that's not in place here. We'll talk about that later. A woman's hair serves as her covering when she prays. This is more about attitude than anything else, about demonstrating that she has submitted to the leadership of her husband, and he and, he and she both are submitting to the leadership of Christ, who's submitting to the leadership of God the Father. It's an attitude issue. And third, and believe me, by far the most important, the creation order should be properly manifested, not obliterated in Christian worship. A woman is to submit to the leadership of her husband when it comes to church life, just like in other aspects of the marriage. The most significant point of application would be that if a woman is in open rebellion 
against the divine leadership structure, she shouldn't be participating in any public aspect of worship. If she's in open rebellion against her husband, then she shouldn't be participating in any public aspect of worship. 